0: Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer, for another delightful Sunday. Although, I must say, in the interests of transparency, Michael, we're actually recording this on Saturday. Well, yes, but pretty close to Sunday. Yes, but you run the risk that something massive happens in the news we report between when you record it and when it goes live, and then it just sounds weird.
1: Yeah, but if it was that big, uh, uh, then we would have talked about it. Since we didn't talk about it, it can't be that important.
0: Well, as long as none of the people we're talking about die... And we have to go back and sub in before his unfortunate death every time he's mentioned.
1: Well, yeah, as long as you don't have to do that, because no way I'm ever doing that.
0: No way you could do that, Michael.
1: Yeah, Gary, it's a cunning plan. Never learn to do something that you don't ever have to do. It's just like we're married. (laughs) No, please. No, 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 no. It is not. It is in no way like that.
0: So I suppose we must open with congratulations, Michael, uh, for someone who has done the state some service and is now wandering away into the sunset as his reward. Tony Houlihan, he thought he was sticking around, but he's not sticking around. He's going somewhere else, presumably a better place. Well,
1: well, uh, what he's not doing, at least what he's not doing right now, is taking a secondment from the HSE in order to go... To do a job in Trinity, he's leaving public service. If I understand it correctly.
0: Yes, the the point where he uh, publicly stated that he had no intention of ever going back to the uh, to the public sector after going to Trinity made it a bit difficult for it to be a secondment. For a man who
1: is. Um supposed to be a, a bright man and let's face it we should give him the benefit of the doubt it was an, an, oddly disconnect, an oddly disconnected notion wasn't it that he was going to announce a second sabbatical almost when he was going to go over and do this fun thing in Trinity but at the same time remain employed and salary and how this even though he was never actually going to go back to the HSE both how that would be in sense sense a secondment or a sabbatical but secondly that nobody would be annoyed by it or notice it or comment on it may just sure, maybe a strange touching naivete in the man.
0: It was an interesting appointment because it was as if the government had looked at the Zappone issue and how much of a problem that became for them and then went, but what if we do that again but for far more money, but with a person who's better liked and that might just balance it all out. There was an interesting article in the Irish Times about it by Jared Howland and it was called, it was titled Casual Contempt for Donnelly Exposed as What Lets Masks Mask Slip and this relates to the fact that Donnelly says he didn't know that this was a secondment that there was anything unusual about this until a couple of hours before he had to go talk to the people about it (laughs) and it's basically about the fact that Donnelly's staff feel contempt for Donnelly to which the only answer Michael I think is kind of a well duh
1: well are we saying that what what the article is 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 implying is that they his is civil servants feel a greater than average degree of contempt for their minister. Because I can't imagine that the civil service is staffed with people who every morning go in dewy-eyed with the prospect of serving the brilliant and fantastic strategist and intellectual that is their
0: minister ignoring what and just talking about the senior staff of the department in general they don't like dunley they've never liked dunley they certainly don't respect him and more than that they don't think he's competent and this has long been the case and anyone who's dealt with them in any respect is aware of this
1: well long been the case I it means not that he's that long in the job okay i'll rephrase my in a sense my my previous question Are we then to understand that they did have respect for Simon Harris and believed that he was competent? Because if that is the case, Gary, then I have have zero interest in their opinion.
0: Simon had a certain pliability to him. I mean, he did what he was told. Some might say that, Michael, but I couldn't. I couldn't possibly comment. You couldn't possibly
1: comment, yeah. So I I, 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 loved, I, mean, does this mean that's, that, it, that's in some say, Donnelly was going around having notions, having ideas, doing brave things, Sir Humphrey kind of things, the same kind of thing that would upset Sir Humphrey?
0: Uh, from what I hear, uh, this is, you know, scurrilous rumour, Michael.
1: Gossip mongering, Gary,
0: gossip. Donnelly has a combination of arrogance and ineptitude that has royally pissed off those around him.
1: Well, it's not a good combo, it is true, I mean. Thick as shit, but arrogant with it is a bit pro- is a problem. So
0: you know situations like people uh, preparing things for the minister, which the minister apparently doesn't read, and then getting bollocked for the min by the minister when the minister fails uh, in his own job and ends up looking bad because he didn't actually do the work,
1: and then blames them for bad staff work, which gossips suggest has happened.
0: So that's that's what I hear, is the general tone inside the um, inside the Department of Health at the minute.
1: And there's one thing we all know about the Department of Health, Gary. It doesn't leak. <laughs> it's sealed like a
0: vacuum. Actually, speaking of departments who are having a whale of a time, I would say the Department of Foreign Affairs has never been so happy that they managed to win <laughs> that place on the Security Council. Uh,
1: uh, yeah, I think the Department of Foreign Affairs right now is wondering why the... Ch- why did Tishuk didn't have a chat with them before he went on the went on the telly and decided to go all Churchillian on the on on the world and maybe even included the. Maybe the Attorney General in the conversation as
0: well. So, for those who aren't aware, me, uh, it's unsurprising if you're not aware, because this the only place I've seen this reported is the Irish Examiner. Michal Martin went on Twitter last night, late enough, like kind of nine-ish, you know, drinking time, Michael, mm. and said that Russian activities inside Ukraine constituted genocide. He was speaking particularly about uh, one instance. Now, the problem with that is this. Genocide has a very strict legal definition. And I'm not sure that what he is talking about meets it.
1: And this is rather more of the problem, isn't it, Gary? It's not just that, okay, it is true that we could now have a great fun debate on what constitutes a genocide and whether or not this is a genocide. But it's also true, if he is of the opinion that it's a genocide, that genocide, if there is a genocide taking place, that this will automatically trigger certain international obligations on Ireland. Because there are international conventions to which we are party, which... Have prevention of genocide clauses to them? Or am I off the base here completely?
0: So there are conventions related to the prevention and punishment of genocide. And they talk about things like certain responsibilities that are upon states to stop uh, genocides and to punish perpetrators of genocide. And there has been a debate about whether or not that only applies territorially, as in in relation to your own territory, stopping genocide from occurring there or whether there is an element of extraterritoriality to it. Now, different countries argue different positions on this, and they tend to argue it in a way that says, well, of course there is an extraterritoriality principle to it, or of course there isn't.
1: Well, that tended to become amplified after the Rwandan genocide.
0: Yes, it did.
1: Because obviously you're talking about a a small uh, sovereign state, which from the European perspective was rather far away. And the defence that the requirements to intervene and to prevent a genocide were only applicable to 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 one's own territory or even to to proximate territories sounded rather oh, hollow, cruel, inhumane, and maybe a touch well, we you know they're not like us. So the. Shall we say the pressure to move it towards the idea that it, 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 it covered extraterr- extraterritoriality be- became quite a lot stronger. Now, of course, what this will inevitably do, is throw the whole neutrality thing into, it, into into the pot. Because in a case like this, in a sense, we are forced to divest ourselves of our neutrality because it becomes like a, a super neutral issue. It's, this is not about taking sides in a, in a conflict between one side and the other. That's not how it's framed in a situation like this. Rather, it's, it's you could call it like a, a militaristic policing action where we have both moral but also a legal duty to go in to intervene to prevent a genocide taking place. Now, first of all, it's odd, isn't it, that it hasn't gone a bit around, the you know, the shot that was heard around the world? Ireland, is like, as you observed, Gary, Ireland, we're on the Security Council and that was a, a big brouhaha and a great uh, bonus for the government, you know, with lots of prestige attached So for a nation which is sitting on the UN Security Council to take the position, or at least for the Taoiseach of that, to take the position that there is a genocide occurring, should you imagine be big news?
0: It should be very big news. I mean, any country saying that one of the uh, permanent members of the Security Council is committing genocide is a big thing. For another member of the Security Council, even though we're not a permanent member to say it, is a massive thing. And the fact that even in Ireland, only the Examiner has covered it so far. Now, as I said, we're he came out and said this on Friday. We're reporting this on Saturday night. It's possible by Sunday morning you will see it in the Sunday papers. But I would really have expected the likes of uh, Politico to pick this up immediately. And no one has. But I'm very interested. Like, why hasn't the Irish Times covered this? And there is nothing,
1: there is nothing, because I I haven't, I didn't check for the last couple of hours. There still is nothing in the Times or the Independent about this.
0: So I'm going to just accept my biases here. I have a very low opinion of the capability of this government and of their ability to understand what they're doing and the consequences of what they're doing. But the first question I asked myself when I saw that tweet from Mihal Martin was, I wonder, did Mihal Martin consult with the Department of Foreign Affairs, the Attorney General, any relevant legal authority that he has access to before he made that statement. Because if he didn't, that's a big problem. Were these? Do
1: you think this was an off-the-cuff remark or a prepared remark?
0: I mean, the man is the Taoiseach. He's surrounded by an entire bureaucracy to ensure he speaks. He does not speak off-the-cuff and he doesn't say things that are incorrect. Unlike
1: Joe Biden. <laughs> but I ask because... My understanding would be certainly, I don't, actually don't know in Ireland, but certainly in London. If uh, a minister or certainly the prime minister is making, has prepared remarks or a speech and there was, there would, there would be, there was, say there's something in the speech which refers to a foreign affairs issue. It would be it would be just standard protocol that a copy of the speech would be, would be sent to the, sent to the, to the, the foreign office where it would be cleared by the foreign office. Or they would make suggestions or whatever or observations, but it would automatically go to them because there were foreign, uh, foreign affairs implications. I would have thought that it would have been standard practice here as well that if there was, if there were either prepared remarks or a speech, that that would be sent to the Department of Foreign Affairs. And in the case of genocide, it's also it's a legal thing. So you, as you say, whether or not the the Attorney General, and it's not, and the thing about here, it's very hard to 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 speculate or to imagine that. Neil Martin is unaware of this and could therefore have been blithe and just unknowing in a sense of making, because he's a historian, well, he's, he, had, he has a master's degree in history. And Gary, you know, know that the subject of the definition of what constitutes a genocide has been a continuous hot topic in Irish historiography for the last 40 years, as people argue whether or not the famine, uh, the Great Famine, was in fact an uh, an act of genocide or not. Micheál Martin must be aware of that debate and consequently must be aware that whether or not something constitutes a genocide is a technical uh, question. It's a speci- There is a specific definition uh, which has specific consequences. Legally, these days.
0: Yeah, and we, we saw things like Boris Johnson came out and he was discussing the general Russian activity there and said that he considered it to be not far from genocide. But the important distinction there is not far from genocide is not genocide. And it's interesting because as someone who's quite interested in the topics of, uh, of Chinese state behavior towards Uyghurs and has followed most of the mentions of that in the Dal and in the Shanid, and has talked with politicians about it. That activity, I'd say, absolutely met the definition of genocide. And you were starting to see more and more experts start agreeing with that over the last while. And then you, you read some of the government's response to mentions of it being genocide in the dollar or the Shannon and there's very much a sort of, well, you know, we can't say that because that's, you know, that's a specific thing and the Chinese have their own way of doing it. And there was a clear deference, and yes, there is the fact that there are massive trading partners there, but in that instance, something which seemed to be on the surface of it, pretty unequivocally a genocide, the Irish government was unwilling to accept it. But now here, Where I would I would say it doesn't it doesn't meet the definition. Now you're starting to hear language from some of the Russian um, state publications talking about the right of Ukraine to exist. That you could argue are getting close to it, but nothing nothing explicit.
1: I think what you can say, Gary, reasonably is it's not genocide yet. But I I don't think either would I don't think we could exclude the possibility that if you look at some of the intellectual underpinnings. Of the people around Putin that, that potentially could end up going there. I mean, okay, let's look at. For example, the Ukrainian state is saying at the moment now whether this is true or false. We we'll leave that up to the listener to decide. But they're claiming that 121,000 Ukrainian children have been taken out of the Ukraine and are being settled around Russia and are going to be settled with Russian families and are going to be alienated from their parents. Now, the well, there is one prominent Russian, shall we say, nationalist, neo-fascist pan-slavist who was writing about Putin and he is it is believed to be someone close to people if not close to Putin close to people who influence Putin he was talking about the Ukraine and he explicitly says that the the value of Ukraine is in its people and in its children Putin is very aware that there has been something of a demographic disaster which has occurred in Russia since 19, say particularly the period say 1917 to 1945 which has created uh not a great population shape for Russia today. Now, he hasn't helped his own, I mean, we've been hearing reports which seem to be substantiated of thousands of some of the young, of the most gifted, qualified, young tech people leaving, fleeing Russia at the moment because they have an expectation that they're not going to be able to apply their trade very soon because of sanctions and closing Closing down the tech trade in Russia, but there is a strong smack of that idea that these are that the Ukrainians are desired in a sense for themselves for their for their bodies as Russians that they are going to be reintegrated into Greater Russia, and that that's potentially heading towards a genocide that kind of thinking, but it's not there yet.
0: No, I think some of the language is is verging into. It. Sort of genocidal language, but that's not a genocidal act. And statements coming from outside the military are not necessarily indicative of the military itself. However, yes, you're you're right. There have been experts saying things could verge into genocide if certain actions are shown to have been done for certain purposes.
1: It's interesting, isn't it, that up to now and. And we're talking about it literally like today. The comments that we're hearing from other people within the EU and people like Boris Johnson have been very careful to talk. And for example, Ursula von Leiden Leyen was talking about the fact that we are now we can talk about war crimes. But that's a long way from saying that there's a genocide occurring.
0: The, my other thought is this: looking at Ireland, like, diplomatically, that there's nowhere left to go after genocide. If you legitimately believe a state is committing genocide. You need to take further steps, but also, you know, what else do you do? Well,
1: practically speaking, I mean, if you actually believe that this is a genocide, well, you, you get you kick you kick out the uh, the ambassador and the staff. You don't have you don't have a a, a consular staff of a genocidal nation in your territory. I mean, if you actually believe this to be the case, I don't. What does Meon Martin think? Do you think? I mean, we're going to spe, speculate here. Maybe we shouldn't even do that. About neutrality. Has he decided the time has come to ditch it? Is this some kind of a, a pre-ploy to soften up to the the idea that we need to ditch uh, neutrality? I mean, neutrality, more, much more so in Fianna Fáil than Fine Gael would have been what we used to call a core value.
0: I, I don't know. I don't know what he what he intends with this. I don't know if this is a meaningful statement or something he just decided to say.
1: Yeah, whether it's just dramatic language. Used for colour. Yeah, but it's not...
0: It is not a thing you can use dramatic language about if you are the head of a state. It's not something you should. I would just... I would be very curious what the feeling is in the Department of Foreign Affairs about this. Now, there are parts of the Department of Foreign Affairs that are very weird. They've gone really weird politically. But not all of the Department of Foreign Affairs, and parts of it are very good. And I would just be curious if those parts think, you know what, we can 100% say this is genocide, and we should have said it was genocide or if they saw this and had a sort of scream silently?
1: Hmm. Well, we'll I'd be curious to see tomorrow morning in the papers, or in maybe even Monday, what, what what the outcome of this is, if there is a further comment. And certainly, even at a, Particularly at an international level, see, because there will certainly be people out there who will seize on this, I would have thought, who want to push the notion that Russia's engaged in genocide and will take this as a ready source of ammunition
0: i mean I, yes there are but i think of all the countries that are that are against russia at this time only a relatively small amount of them and probably the more minor ones would want something like this
1: well, i'm not talking about nations or even politicians i'm talking about shall we say influencers uh policymakers uh tv personalities
0: yeah no i i sorry i, I thought you meant states um no
1: no not states but rather people trying to influence The policies in their own states.
0: Yeah, I I think you're right on that. I I mean, just on the point about states and what they will think about this uh, and why they might not like it, I think the problem is once you start, once you say genocide, and once at the highest level you've accused someone of genocide, diplomatically, you're kind of done.
1: And you put everybody else, if you haven't agreed to this, I mean, we are part of the EU. I mean, this is, uh, this is, uh, a lot of this conflict is about the relationship of the Ukraine with, with the EU. And, Great bulk of the aid that the Ukraine is getting is from the EU. It would be unfortunate if he said this without some kind of connection with the rest of the EU EU partners, insofar as it now puts them in a very awkward position. Uh, President Macron uh Chancellor, Prime Minister, Presidente, whatever it is, have you seen that the Irish Prime Minister has said that what's happening in Russia is a genocide? Do you agree?
0: Well, Macron is actually an interesting one. uh, And this kind of relates to more of what we're seeing about the eu in general so i don't know if you if you saw macron was criticized there by the polish prime minister for all of the talks and calls he's been having with putin and macron has been actively engaging with putin and the polish pm came out and said that this was the same as having calls with hitler and no one would have done that firstly that's historically michael as you're probably well aware not quite what happened with hitler There was quite a lot of discussion with Hitler in the early stages.
1: There was a a very famous photograph of a British Prime Minister getting off an airplane holding a piece of paper and telling us he had secured peace in our time.
0: This, whatever about the, the correctness of the comment, it pissed Macron off. It's not unexpected that Macron comes out with... Some very pointed comments. He does not take dissent well.
1: No, he is what a friend of mine would say. A little bit
0: fighty. So, he responded to... Macron responded to the Polish Prime Minister, basically saying that Macron shouldn't be dealing with with Putin, shouldn't be calling him. And Macron said that the Polish Prime Minister was a far right anti-Semite who hates LGBT people. Yeah. Which is kind of like, you know, you say a mild criticism and then suddenly you've got this.
1: Yeah, as the, children, as the kids like to say, well, that escalated quickly. Although, of course, I mean, there may be all sorts of other things going on here. Um, Hungary has been formally reprimanded by... A, a letter is on the way, exactly like how Ursula von der Leiden expressed it, but Poland has not been sent a letter, even though a lot of people in the Parliament and the Commission would like Poland to be sent a letter for Oh, I suppose offences against values that are central to the EU, whatever those values might be, and I think maybe Macron is... There, there was a sense that sorry, the French wouldn't have been unhappy if the Poles had been given a bit of a slap as well, not just the Hungarians. but of course... And rightly or wrongly, something, there's a sense, there seemed to be a sense that they didn't want to get the Poles involved because the Poles are now feel very much like a frontline nation and are dealing with a a very large amount of the fallout coming from the war in Ukraine. So they're giving them a bit of, shall we say, space.
0: Well, Macron has his own distractions right now. He does, he does. So we haven't talked about it, so we may as well mention it. The the upcoming French election, which has seen Macron is in the lead, but has seen uh, Marie Le Pen increase substantially over the last while. They're within about 3% of each other. Now, the French system, you have two rounds. So you have the the first round where it's going to be, I think, 5 against each other? You have uh, Macron, Le Pen, uh, Melenchen, Zenmore, and uh, Bakris.
1: Now, before we look at the numbers there, I just would make the observation. If you look at the polls that preceded the Hungarian election, all of the polls suggested it was going to be a rather tight affair. It ended up being a smash. It was a landslide, basically, for Orban. Now, I'm not saying we're obviously two very different countries, very different contexts, But if you if there is some kind of a weird mood happening around Europe or continuing to happen around Europe, you might better say I put you to it this way, Gary. Okay, we're looking at the polls at the moment. You would say, on the basis of what happened before, like the famous time was it? It was Le Pen's father, wasn't it? Was it Le Pen's father? It was up against Chirac, and the left said, uh, "Vote for the thief." Not for the fascist. Yes, and the the left came out in in large numbers to vote for Chirac. So and it ended up being a fairly tame affair. He, he won comfortably. Now I'm just saying, what at the moment it looks in France like it's quite a tight affair. But isn't it possible that the polls are hiding quite a few shy Tories? Now obviously they're not. You know what I mean, shy Tories. The those people who are unwilling to admit to pollsters that their intention is actually to vote for Le Pen.
0: I I don't know because when you look at the polls from the last French election Macron and Le Pen were actually pretty comparable to where they stand in this, as in the difference between them. And actually, sorry, I, I said before that the French have two rounds. The French have two rounds as long as no one gets over fifty percent in the first round. But it's it's technically possible to get it done in one.
1: If you don't get, if you get a plurality in the first round, you, you're, you're elected.
0: To be technically correct, Michael, it's been very interesting watching the election because Le Pen has softened substantially on some issues since the last election i mean she's been welcoming ukrainian refugees michael she's been saying putin was wrong uh to invade ukraine she has Heavily uh, based parts of her campaign on um, <clears throat> reducing the price of energy, on increasing the building of nuclear and hydropower plants in order to lower the price of energy. Now, there's the usual stuff there, you know, higher pensions, all of that sort of thing. But it's actually quite interesting that um, Le, Pen's, Le Pen is most popular in younger demographics.
1: And that I find fascinating is look if you look at the breakdown in the polling, Macron is ahead 51 to 49 percent, right? But the only Demographic where he is ahead of Marine Le Pen is in over 55s and the highest that Le Pen has, she scores 56 to 44, obviously stripping out everybody else in the don't knows. In the 18 to 24 year old bracket, he's she, she's getting 40, 56 to 44. 25 to 34, she's 53 to 47, 35 to 44, she's 53 to 47, and 45 to 54, it's 49 to 51, Le Pen. So quite tight there later, but only in the over 55s is Macron ahead. Now, you would say, well, for Macron, not not bad news, because, of course, over 55s tend to vote uh, more steadily and more reliably than people aged 18 to 24. And I, I take your point, Gary, But if you look at the polling from the last time, that would be right. This is fairly similar in some ways. I'm just saying that if there is a bit of a movement underground, there may be quite You would not be surprised that people who would, even an election ago, considered it embarrassing or a little disrespectful reputable to vote for Marine Le Pen, maybe in their little hearts saying, I'm going to vote for her, but I'm not telling you I am. The other thing is that, as you say, she has I mean, she, she made a big show of distancing herself from her father and a number of her father's more hardline policies. In fact, it was rather a public uh, falling out between the two and her father repudiating, uh, well, a little bit repudiating her and certainly repudiating her policies and the direction that she was going in. She is, she's been quite surprisingly hard on uh, Russia.
0: Yes. Um, it is going to be very interesting. I suppose we're going to know relatively soon. But a Le Pen victory would be uh, disruptive, shall we say. Oh, can you imagine
1: the effect it would have? I mean, I, I, let's face it. The EU is run by Germany and then France. Then after that, you get other people get a bit of a say, the Italians can threaten to bankrupt the place, so you have to listen to them a little bit and the Spanish are a little bit there. But really, since the UK left, the power at the centre really has con- is concentrated very much more on the French and the Germans. Obviously, the Germans on top. Le Pen, What one would first suggest that the likelihood of letters being sent to Victor Orban would radically decrease.
0: Yeah, I, I suppose actually one thing we didn't mention is we're talking roughly about the figures or, or their position, but not what the actual trends are showing here. Macron has been going down in popularity since about mid-March, somewhere around then. And shortly after Macron starts dropping, Le Pen starts moving up. Now, uh Melikon moves up as well. Zenmore has actually, he was looking fairly good for a while there as we came into the year, kind of in February. But he's also, he's way down as well. With uh, Pacrese, they're just, they're trailing, they're both on under 10%. Yeah. And it's getting close. And if, like, if that trend continues, then by now they are pretty much dead on each other.
1: And I think the point you're making, actually, is that's the, that's the thing that we're really worrying because we all, you you particularly know, Gary, that when you're in polling, what you're looking for is what the Americans call the big mo, momentum. And the last, the most recent polls showed really, very surprising and really significant momentum uh, with under 34 voters, in large, large, a surge. What the Daily Mail called a tidal wave, I don't know if it's quite that, but certainly a very strong surge of support for, uh, for Le Pen in the under 34s coming in the last few days. And momentum is really what scares politicians in, in, in opinion polls, especially if it's momentum happening like two days, three days before the election occurs. Because there's very little you can do about it at that stage because you can't really even understand why it's happening.
0: No, I mean, it, it seems from this that we're going to get Macron and Le Pen in a runoff. Yeah. And that's when it'll get pretty interesting as to how that breaks down. I mean, we've seen that before. That's not a, a new thing. But now I think Le Pen is softer. There's a lot more focus on cost of living, sort of bread and butter issues.
1: And the perception that Macron has been maybe pussyfooting a bit with the Russians. I don't think it's necessarily going to go down well with the populace, you know. More and more, I think, not just in France, but across Europe and across the world, there's a sense that, at a very banal level, Gary, this the, the the Russian invasion of Ukraine is going to make life a lot more difficult and uncomfortable and expensive for an awful lot of people.
0: I like the French elections. The French can get very dirty.
1: Oh savage. Well it's inevitable, isn't it? When you got it's presidential, so it's it's always ultimately going down to the character and the personality of the person. Policies are always going to be yeah, okay, you have policies, but really there's a large section of it is, do we like you? What do we think of you? Is your mistress attractive if you don't have a mistress? Why don't you have a mistress?
0: Do you fulfill the urge we feel to bring back the monarchy? A lot of considerations.
1: Would you use the guillotine if you had the chance?
0: Well, actually, by the time this episode goes up, I think that voting will have started. Yes. So just, I suppose, a, a one thing before we close, Michael. Yeah. Uh, we were right about something. And unfortunately, we were right about one of those things where you don't want to be right about it. But it's also very clear that you're going to be right about it. Well, I
1: like being right about it, and I always feel it's incumbent upon us when we are right about something, to tell the people.
0: So we were talking about the government's, um, what were called the government's plans to take up to 200,000 Ukrainian immigrants if necessary.
1: No, Gary, you're fair. Refugees. Let's call them refugees. What did I call them? Immigrants. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Again, it's late night.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I just wonder if there's a little bit of a Freudian lapsus there, but anyway.
0: No, no, refugees. Um, And we were talking about the fact that for all people were saying these were the government's plans, the government didn't seem to have any plans. Like, there were no details released on anything that really told you anything about what they were planning. And we, I think, made the perfectly reasonable point, Michael, that 200,000 people is the population of Cork. And no, we can't do that. And we not only can't do that, we obviously cannot do that. Nor could we do even much lower numbers when you look at um, direct provision, when you look at the housing crisis, when you look at the homelessness crisis. At no point has the government ever shown an ability to house large numbers of people, this government.
1: The fact that they didn't have a plan didn't come as a great surprise to either of us, in fairness, Gary. that The absence of a plan has never stopped them plowing ahead to do something really stupid I mean not not that I want to return to ancient dead horses and flag them flog them again I mean they had immense amount of pl- planning went into the uh, the choice uh, and the design of the children's hospital but there's we're still left with what is going to cost two and a half billion of a hospital
0: oh yes two and a half is the new estimate we're hearing.
1: yeah that's That's the word. No, they will never admit to that. And if they are forced to admit to something getting towards that, it will be because of legal challenges that were launched by the by the company building it. It will be because of the Ukraine. It will be because of COVID. It will be all sorts of very good reasons, other than the fact that they couldn't organize a piss up in a brewery, and it will still be in the wrong place, and it will still be, as I'm going to say, half the size of the of the Children's Hospital, which was built in Lisbon for half the money. But I wouldn't want to drag that all up again. But I'm merely elucidating the fact that even with a plan, Gary, they're not exactly masters of their craft, but they have neither plan nor notion nor idea here. They have a number, 200,000. That's what we're going to do. And, And now it has been announced by, was it the Red Cross? Well, no, it was commented, shall we, observed by the Red Cross, I think. Your man that used to be head of the nurses' union said that we apparently can't put the Ukrainians into sheds because that's not really, con- uh, re- doesn't, it's not congruent with their human dignity. Now, Gary, I'm not saying the man is wrong. I think he may indeed be right. But if we can't put them in sheds, I don't know where the hell we're going to put
0: them. And I think this was a point that we might made when discussing this previously, Michael, that. When you're dealing particularly with refugees from war zones in these numbers, you can't just put them anywhere because they'll have educational need, they may need uh, therapy, they may need any number of things, and just scattering them around the place doesn't work. And I think we just generally made the point that there's no plan here, there's just an aspiration we can do it. Now, the 200,000 figure was presented as a sort of we may need to take up to this amount, and we will, but that was based on projections of how many refugees there would be. And, and they were on the extreme end. But what we now know is that the government, and this is according to the Irish Independent, they say they've got hold of an internal cabinet memo and that the memo says that um, by this weekend, they will run out of places to put refugees. They think that by the end of this month, there will be 10,000 Ukrainian refugees who have no accommodation. Apparently there are about five hundred and eighty refugees arriving every day and they just cannot deal with it.
1: But Gary, won't that make it much less fun to jeer and sneer at the English because of their attitude to the refugees and visas and stuff, if we have ten thousand homeless Ukrainians wandering around the gaff?
0: Well I'll just I'll give you a quote that the Independent says they have from the memo. That the capacity for the state to accommodate refugees is now nearing exhaustion. And that the continuing trajectory of arrivals gives rise to the high risk of an acute lack of short term, including emergency accommodation. And a point we had made in the previous discussion, Michael, is if you say you can help people while knowing or you know in a position where you should know that you can't, you are actively harming them in many points because they will assume that you can help them and they will move on that assumption. And other people will also understand that they don't need to provide aid because you are going to provide it, and then it turns out actually no, we could never do that.
1: And like you say, it's not just housing. Although obviously the single most important element of that is giving these people a decent, reasonable place to live. They're going to need medical help. Some of them may need psychiatric or psychological help and support. They're going to be. They're going to be significant numbers of children. They're going to need education. You're going to need language services, interpreting and translating services. You're going to need some way of integrating them into the educational system. You may need intensive language courses. I don't know if that's something they've that even considered. There, there's, there's so many other services and, and supports that are going to be required all of which are going to cost money, by the way. And the last thing that you would dread, and I'm not saying that it will happen in Ireland because I have a reasonably high opinion of the Irish people, except when it comes to voting, and I think they should just stop voting the way they do and just listen to me. But other than that, I have a pretty high opinion of them. But there is always a risk, Gary, if you have large numbers of people coming in and and the services reach a certain point where they just can't cope with it anymore, then you start to create potentially resentments against these utterly blameless people who are simply trying to get their, their, their children away from a place where they might be killed.
0: No, and I, this was always a difficult thing for the government because there's two options. Either you fail and you potentially harm people and you look foolish or weak, or you succeed, and then people who have had other needs which you haven't been able to meet, let's say you know the long-term homeless or those who haven't been able to get housing, asks why you couldn't do that for them. And you really want an answer by that point.
1: Yeah, you have to have some kind of answer. And we have no notion, Gary. We have no notion how long this war may go on. And I think that one of the things that had... Kind of concerned me is so much of the, so much of the discourse about this, particularly discourse about whether Ukrainians are winning and all that, and they may, may well be winning, and it may be that we live in an age where this kind of war can't go on very long. But Jesus, Gary, how many times have we heard out oh, it'll, "It'll be over by Christmas"? It wasn't just the First World War; pretty well every war that started in the twentieth century and since then has started with the assumption that it would all be over much, much quicker than it ended up being. How long were were the Allies in Afghanistan? How long were the Russians in Afghanistan? How long has Iraq been going? Syria is still happening here. People may have forgotten, but Syria is not yet a peaceful oasis in the desert. We have no clue how long this is going to go on and how long these people may have to be in
0: Ireland. So we, we, we have that, Michael. We have the government says by this weekend, or well, the government is privately accepting that by this weekend, there are going to be issues with accommodation. The end of the month... Based on their projections, uh, according to this memo, as reported by the Independent, and assuming all of that's accurate, 17,000 to 19,000 people will be seeking accommodation by Easter weekend. Wow. And that goes into another issue which the Independent are also talking about. That there were people who took in Ukrainian families thinking that this war was going to be over quickly. Exactly. And that now the war keeps going on and these families... Partially because of uh, just how long this has been going, but also because of increases in the costs of everything are starting to run into trouble. Now, there are other countries in Europe and the UK who are paying money to host families. Yes. We're not doing that. They're going to have to, Gary. I mean, there's no two ways about it. I mean, Michal Martin has, has said that they're going to be doing stuff that they're going to. But he hasn't given like this is what we'll do. This is what we'll give you. And this is when it will happen.
1: Also, I, I know this from direct uh, experience that there are people who have taken in families on the basis. I was uh, This is one of the things I was thinking about, one of my previous comments was that on the basis that this was going to last X amount of time. And it, as an emergency, they would take these people in. But in space, which is actually fairly limited and cramped these, and while they may get on fine, I mean, ultimately, they're also going to reach a point where they say, well, we just, we really need our house back. And they're going to look to the state to provide alternatives. And I'm very gloomy about the prospect that the state's going to be in a position to do that. This whole thing is just a shit show. Now, you might reasonably say, well, what, we shouldn't take in refugees? I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is you should take in as many refugees as is reasonable to take in on the basis of what, that you can actually help these people and house them rather than bring them over here with the promise and and with great hope, with hope and expectations, and then treat them dreadfully, treat them as badly as we treat the other refugees, which we stick into the into direct provision. This is not the way to behave. This is not a way. This is not a way for grown up people to behave.
0: It, just, it actually reminds me of um, who was it? Was it wasn't it Martin or was it someone else who ended up on British TV, being asked whether they were doing background checks, on Ukrainian refugees came in, and did this sort of you know, our interests are, are you know, we're only interested in, in the uh, humanitarian side of things. And, you know, this a very lovely message that totally negates the fact that actually all of those bureaucratic things serve a function. And if you get rid of them in the name of doing the humane thing, you may actually just cause more problems for yourself.
1: If you're going to be very cynical, Gary, and nasty and low-minded, you would say that some of the people involved in this have been involved in a very base kind of virtue signalling. However, I'm sure that the vast majority are doing it because they are deep and committed Christians and are doing it out of the love they have for their fellow man who finds themselves in terrible distress. And this is actually people working on the corporal
0: works of mercy. Anyway, we shall see. I was surprised, actually, on the Indo's reporting, uh, although it makes sense that we're setting up tents ...in some of the uh, Defence Force facilities for refugees to sleep in. God. Doesn't really give you the idea that um, there's a lot of capacity there, does it? Apparently the, the barracks in Gormanston has had enough tents erected there to accommodate 320 people.
1: Well, that's fantastic.
0: So we were right. I would have preferred we were not right. And the government had been able to come out with some, we've just got this plan... But I think, Michael, from the start to this point where they're privately admitting that there's an issue. Now, they're still publicly not admitting there is an issue, but they privately admitted there's now an issue. I think anyone who stopped for a second and looked at it should have been able to go, this is going to go badly. Like, this isn't going to work. And maybe had they done that, or maybe had they been willing to have a conversation about whether or not it could work, they might have been able to get more of this to work.
1: At, at, at the very basis level, Gary, this was an example of people who confidently poured two pints into a one pint glass and then were distressed to discover that they had splashed beer all over the floor. I mean, it, it really did not take the world class expert in logistics or planning to, to work out that a country that had a gross shortage in housing, could not take in 200,000 people in the space of a couple of months and house them. How hard was that to understand? Anyway, listen, I I should get annoyed. Uh, I think we should leave uh, the nice people to enjoy their Palm Sunday. Just before we go, I want to give a happy shout out to two regular viewers, Martin uh, and Ruth, who have undergone, undergone is maybe the wrong word, who recently... Uh, uh had their first stage in their marriage process they're doing a rather elaborate dance gary i won't go into it it all seems very unnecessary to me but they all seem to be blissfully happy about it and they had a happy day the other day in wexford in the in front of the registrar i want to wish them a centani as the italians would say and well done and congratulations
0: i didn't think we were doing shout outs
1: well we we've just done one uh, they are available for very reasonable free
0: I have, uh, I have no one to shout out as I uh, didn't know we were doing this, so I suppose <laughs> I shall just tell you all that I wish for my own continued success,
1: and 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 the nation, the nation cheers you on, Gary. But until next Sunday, we'll say bye bye. All the best.